0: Are listening to the Irish Times Women's Podcast, I'm Cathy Sheridan. So, Roshan, I'm going to say this in a very measured voice. Happy Valentine's Day. If everyone could see your face, Cathy, you've got
1: what I can only describe as a pained expression on your face. Yes. Yeah. You're not like you don't like Valentine's Day.
0: Actually, it's not a day I was ever very fond of. I think it's actually quite exclusionary. Um, And I. I have more of a personal investment in saying that this year, to be honest with you. But I think generally looking around me, it is more exclusionary than anything else. And it has been, I think, taken out of it's context entirely. Uh, Dolly Alderton actually wrote a terrific column on it last Sunday in the Sunday Times. Uh, which, and that's basically what she said. It's, it's, originally, it was meant to be a, a time when people wooed one another, when somebody you fancied, you kind of made an approach. And that, you sent them the card and said, guess who? And you, you know, I remember as a schoolgirl no, getting these cards and being that. wildly <laughs> excited and thinking, I really do wonder who it is. <laughs> uh, uh, hoping, hoping that it was somebody in particular. Now it's become this mad explosion of stupid hearts and roses and dinners and people staring at one another across tables in very expensive restaurants and really quite sickly. Mm. And I say that with all due respect to those who are doing all those things, but I think it is exclusionary above all. So I do have a problem with that.
1: It. Yeah, it's funny. It's not good. Valentine's is not good when you're having a row with your partner. It is exclusionary as well, but I, <laughs> I am having, having a, row, I'm having a bit of a row with Johnny at the moment because because... We got our house painted, right? You'll know all about this. I you're do. rewiring and your painting. But we got shocking. the house painted and it's been ages. I won't even say how long, but it's ages since we got it painted. But when we got it painted, you put all the pictures and photographs and all those things that make your house feel quite, kind of homely. You put them up in the attic. Well, I don't because I don't go near the attic. But Johnny got the ladder out, put the stuff up in the attic. But now I'm having a few people around and, you know, I'm thinking, geez, this just looks like I have no, there's nothing in my life. I have to get those paintings back. So, you know, when something becomes very urgent and you're like, mm-hmm. I want Those paintings, so I can't go up in the attic. It's just not my thing. I just don't do it. So I asked Johnny to get the stuff down. And then I go up to try and um you know to get to decide where I'm gonna put everything. It's a really lovely project, and then I find that two of my favourite things, the glass has smashed in them. And I had not been informed of this, so they'd been sitting there for whatever long and smashed. And I I can't really explain how angry I got about it. Can I just ask you one thing? Yes.
0: Is it fixable?
1: Yes, but it's not the point. The point is, why didn't they, the person, why didn't he tell me that they were broken so that I didn't have to discover it? Like a shocking discovery that I can only describe it. Okay, I'll just say
0: say two things to you. Yeah? First, it's fixable. Yes. Secondly, that was a real revealing moment when you said, you never go up to the attic. (laughs) I have never been in the (laughs) attic in our house to this day. And to be honest, it's only now I realise there were a lot of things I, I did not do and never felt it was my area. Um, Kathy, and you're right. I, I'm just going to use this as a reminder to people <sighs> to think of those kind of things. Yeah. To think of the things they do do for you. Forget the blooming hearts and flowers and stupid expensive dinners. Yeah, it really is about the times you go up to the attic or fill the petrol tank. Oh God!
1: Jo- if Johnny's listening to this, he is actually like cheering if yeah. he's listening to this, because yeah. that's kind of, I think that's kind of basically what rolls in his head all
0: the time when I yeah. give him a hard time. It's the things stuff. you actually don't think about, uh <sighs> and you don't until. Somebody yeah. stops doing it. Well, there it. is
1: a nice ending, so I, this is where I do oh, think maybe Valentine's Day can be useful because I mean, I, 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 I don't know. I, I have lately. I think I'm, as I'm getting older, you know, when I'm annoyed about something. Like I give, I get really, I'm getting really into the silent treatment, like which isn't good. I know it's not good, but I heard that's actually driver, the worst. A taxi driver once told me that his wife sometimes doesn't speak to him for a week, mm. and I remember thinking, God, that's <laughs> a bit. But I think I've mean, oh, ever terrible. since I heard it. Having I've been thinking. <laughs> Yeah, they've children Ooh. and everything. He was laughing when he said it, but he was serious. And anyway, I've been giving a bit of the silent treatment for a couple of days only, not a whole week. And then because of the smashed glass. Yeah, I've just been so annoyed about it. Not that I know it's fixable, but it was just that if he'd have told me, then I could have maybe gone and done something about it. Now I'm feeling like. But you didn't
0: get drunk and go smashing all the kitchen no. windows. No, 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 okay.
1: no. But anyway, right. So it was still simmering. The silent thing was still happening as we came into work today, and then I got this. Just got this email just before this. Very podcast I just got an email pinged into my um, inbox and also the other thing that's what I've been a bit annoyed about I've been a bit uh, flahoolock with money lately and so I'm kind of a bit strapped for cash and yes. it's been impeding me but it's my own fault you know when you just go a bit on a yes. you know sometimes that happens so there's a bit of transference going on here as well yeah it's probably there's always yeah. that it's always it's never really the, the yeah. smashed no, thing no it <laughs> never <laughs> is and that is true that is true. So anyway, little email pinged in in the spirit of Saint Valentine. I've put X amount of cash into your um, account. So I have to say, I did think that was one of the most romantic things. That's Johnny, ever to Johnny, seriously,
0: you have smashed it.
1: <laughs> he has smashed it. That's the problem. Don't remind me. You smashed it in every sense, Johnny. Don't mind her. <laughs> so that's Valentine's Day sorted, Cathy.
0: <laughs> well, I am delighted for you both. Thank uh, you. No more silences because they're the worst. I know. it is. I prefer good. smashed glass than a silence, actually. OK, good to know. Yes. What so. have we got to look forward to on this?
1: It's not really a Valentine's-themed episode, is it?
0: Well, Roisin, later on in today's show, you're going to hear from a very impressive woman, Hetty Fry, the longest-serving female MP in Canada, who was in Dublin recently for an event at the Royal College of Surgeons in Ireland, where she studied in the 1960s. But first, I'm talking to a woman called Anne Marr, who is the director and co-founder of the National Ballet of Ireland, Ballet Ireland. As a dancer, Anne was awarded a scholarship by the late Princess Grace of Monaco to study at L'Académie de Danse Classique in Monte Carlo. And she has danced for the British Ballet Theatre in London and all of the major roles in classical ballet. After 15 years on the professional circuit, she bought a house on the advice of her father, clever man, came home and co-founded Ballet Ireland, where, as director, she is committed to making the company less reliant on traditional ballet. I spoke to Anne about her career, about ballet's image as a bit snooty and something for the elite, and she also had some very interesting things to say about ballet's Me Too moment, with dancers in New York speaking out about their negative experiences. Anne Maher, if we'd an honour system in this country, I think you'd be a dame or a baroness or something. do <laughs> you think? <laughs> You are you are ballet Ireland, aren't you? Uh,
2: I you are suppose ballet. so, and that's very kind of you. Um, and that would be that would be lovely if we had recognition of the arts in such a uh, fashion in Ireland. But unfortunately, we don't. We don't have any kind of honour system, actually. I know we're a democracy.
0: It's just that I grew up reading the Four Marys and Bonte and Judy <laughs> and, and, and the, the Madame and these schools was always, she always had a title and was revered and Absolutely. walked yeah. very, yeah. and,
2: and in fact, Devalois, Dame Nanette Devalois, who was, of course, an Irish woman from Wicklow, who founded the Royal Ballet, um, ultimately became a Dame, but she was known throughout her career as Madame, you know, or Madame. Nobody called her anything other than Madame. No, I feel bad calling you Anne. <laughs> but they were
0: terrified of her and nobody is afraid of me. Are they not? Well, we'll get around to that and that whole atmosphere around ballet and how it's changing very rapidly, I gather. But let's talk about Ballet Ireland, Anne, to start with. Your whole mission in life is to promote your new production coming to Dublin in March.
2: That's right. Yes, it is indeed. Um, as with every season, you know, my focus is very much on the, the actual production in progress and uh, wanting to broadcast that to as wide an audience as possible and getting them to come and see it and enjoy it and feel the passion for it that I do.
0: This is called Bold Moves. Is it
2: as modern as it sounds? Absolutely. Yes, it is. Um, even though, uh, well, one of the pieces was specially commissioned by uh, by Ballet Ireland in 2015. So that was created by a French cho- choreographer for us called Ludovic Anduviela, who was actually from the Royal Ballet. Um, so that one is from 2015. That's called Lost. The other piece, um, although very contemporary in feel, was created originally on uh, NDT, Netherlands Dance Theater, in 2001. So um, it was originally created back then, but actually is incredibly fresh, incredibly cutting edge still.
0: You were you, you you danced professionally Anne for thirty five years. You, you, you retired at thirty five, <laughs> but obviously you had been getting towards that point sure. for all those years. Um, looking at the, at, you know the way people who are, who, who uh, are traditional Irish dancers say mm. uh, they were appalled when people began to swing their arms around and river dance and that sort of thing. Do you do you feel that at all? I mean, are you at all finicky about about how ballet is is practiced? Is there anything about the contemporary style that annoys you, or do you just think, no, this is all promoting wonderful art?
2: You know, it's it's like everything. Um, I believe that there's only there's only one kind, and that's good, good, good dance, good ballet, good music, uh, good art. You know, there are lots of iterations of uh, contemporary work that. Uh, come out these days, some of which I look at and I just think, oh my God, please preserve me. And, you know, I have no desire to look at it any further because it simply doesn't doesn't have quality and it doesn't have something genuine to say or express. But good work, regardless of what genre it is of dance, whether it is um, the most classical of ballet and traditional as we you know, that perception that we have of of very upright, tutu-clad, point-work ballet. Um, it, it can be that, or it can be absolutely the other extreme. As long as I see it as being of real quality, fabulous.
0: And just let's to finish off that thought, actually, you know, for example, people mention the Bolshoi Ballet, and mm. they think that is the, 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 the yardstick of where the world should be. Yeah. I gather that's not quite where, what it's about anymore.
2: Well, you know, the Russians have a particular place in Irish psyche of what ballet is. And I'm not quite sure how that arrived. Um, and of course, there are extraordinary Russian dancers but there are also lots of not so extraordinary russian dancers because russia is so vast um and their schooling system you know churns out so many many students who are average and then there are the ones who are absolutely extraordinary because they have such a vast number um that they take in at the beginning. So, you know, they can go through them and sift through and sift through. Why in Ireland we perceive Russia to be the absolute pinnacle, I do not know, because Paris these days is quite extraordinary and the dances that they produce at the Paris Opera are incredible. Um, equally in in some of the other companies in the Bayerische Staatsoper in Munich are amazing. Um
0: you know, but oh, the nicer. Russians pulled off one great branding coup by the sound of things—something like that. I think. <laughs> <laughs> and Anne, with your own company, I mean, are they drawn from? from Ireland? Are they mainly drawn from abroad? Where do you find your dancers?
2: Uh, they're a mixture and a balance of absolutely everything and from everywhere. So, of course, we have Irish dancers. I don't have enough. Um, I would love to be able to employ more of the fabulous Irish dancers that are out there. Um, unfortunately, I'm not in a position to hire people full-time. So, therefore, um, I I employ freelance dancers um, and some There are a handful of Irish dancers working in Europe full time who would love to come home, but I can't offer them full time work. So obviously, you know, they have rent to pay and they want to leave, lead lives like everybody else. Uh, so they're not in a position financially to take up the offer of work that I can provide. Um, But I do have um, an extraordinary stable of dancers who come from everywhere, from Japan to Germany to Australia at times, Canada, Ireland, uh, France, Spain, so Brazil, they come from everywhere. Do any of them come from Russia? Actually, we have one dancer who is from Belarus, Oh, believe it or not, who is living here with her husband, has been here for a number of years because her husband works in the tech industry and
0: she came with him. Oh, well, now you've changed our whole view of ballet and where Uh where they come from. And now going back yourself to to your own beginnings, uh, where did you come from? How did people discover you had such talent? And how did Princess Grace come into it? So I'm from Sutton
2: um, and when I was small, my mum sent me to ballet classes because uh, she thought I would enjoy it and I was very young. I was four, I think, three and a half or four when I went along. Um, I just loved it. I had gone to Irish dancing classes as well and hated it because I couldn't use my arms and couldn't be a little fairy and fly around the place and, you know throw your arms around and generally feel gorgeous. Uh so yeah, I guess I just kept going and my teacher was a wonderful woman called Myrtle Lamkin. And Myrtle just encouraged me to come more and more often. And, you know, she would pick me up in her car at the time she lived in Hoth. So she would uh she would always drop me home after classes. She would insist I came uh, to all of the classes that she was teaching and, you know, she'd collect me or drop me home. And when she taught in town in the Morrissini whelan studios, which were beside Arnott's there once upon a time, and, and again she would take me home in the evenings and things like that. So, you know, it was just that process of uh going more and more and, you know, I was her little protégé, I suppose. Um, and then eventually... um I went firstly to Cork for a year um, and I worked for the infamous Joan Denise Moriarty. Um she a tough cookie? Yes, <laughs>
0: she was. Yes, Anne rolled her eyes there when yes. I asked, yes.
2: She was, she was a what tough does that? What,
0: what does that mean in, in ballet and for somebody to be tough with you? Because I, I've seen you mention in the past about how there was a lot of shouting um, inappropriate behavior, yeah get back to as well, but yeah. when you talk about that was it was it was there disrespect? I mean, I gather you were treated as, as 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 little boys and girls, really, when you were quite grown up
2: yeah, I mean I suppose for me, I found the fact like when I worked for Moriarty, I went down there at the age of fifteen and a half, and i was I left school and I went down because the, for me, the the invitation was all about the fact that I could do class with the company who was in Cork, the full-time company at the time. So that was this, this, the carrot. I could take class every day with the company. Um, and But the real reason I was there was to teach in her school. So I was teaching at the age of 15 and a half and 16 students that were often older than myself, and I would be sent out to Formoy and Mallow and Limerick and all of these um, outlying schools that she had. And I would teach for her. I know it's quite extraordinary. When you think about it now, you know, you
0: wonder. (laughs) How did you even get there? Did somebody drive you?
2: No, I took the bus. I schlepped this huge, big reel-to-reel recorder with me. And I got on the local bus and traipsed all the way down. And then going to Limerick, of course, I took the train. Changed at Limerick Junction. Used to pretend I was going home to Dublin, and got off at the last second so I wouldn't miss my connection. But anyway, yeah. So that was. So that was a, that was sounds pretty miserable. It it was terrific, but some of it was hard because obviously I missed my family. And the bit I think that was the most difficult um, with Moriarty was uh, she was very. Unbending bending about certain things. Like the last train home to Dublin on a Saturday afternoon was, I can't, I can't remember exactly now, I think it was at 5.15 or it was at 5.30 perhaps. Anyway, the class I taught, the last class I taught for her, ended 15 minutes after the train left. And she wouldn't give me the time to to leg it down to <laughs> Kent Street Station, basically, uh, to get the the last train to dublin so that i could go home at the weekends to my family which i thought was pretty miserable um and you know, a little tough.
0: Um, More than a little, I think, by the sound of things. And yeah. and, and then you got out of there, Anna, anyway. <laughs> and what happened next? <laughs> I did. Uh, yeah, my teacher
2: in the interim had written to Princess Grace and said, you know, I have this lovely student and I think that you should look at her and give her a scholarship. So uh, she wrote back and said that... Um, I should go to Monaco and I should be seen by Marika Bezubrasova, who was the teacher in the school. And I went for a month uh, initially, and that was my audition, if you like. And at the end of the month, uh, Marika said, I could stay.
0: So I did. And was that the start of Great Things then, Anne?
2: Yeah, that was really uh, a terrific training for me i mean it was a wonderful school small and intimate but a wonderful school that developed and trained dancers who uh, all of the the people i was in school with are you know in companies around europe and now directing and choreographing and doing things in in places scattered throughout europe so it was a great
0: school and i i did i did love it and you ended up dancing some of, all of the great roles, actually. I did, yeah,
2: yeah. Um, When I graduated from the school, I left and uh, came to London initially and then moved to Germany where I worked for nearly 15 years. Um, And I did, yes, I Danced Odette Odile in Swan Lake, and the Sugar Plum Fairy, and Nutcracker, and you know, I danced the Queen of the Willies in Giselle, and all of the, Sleeping Beauty, all of those, um, all of those greats, along with some other more modern pieces. But um, the focus was very much on the classical. Repertoire. Yes. When, yeah.
0: when I was when I when I was young and down in rural Ireland, somebody gave me a a, a picture book of the ballet and Margot Fontaine was a star in it. Yeah. And I used to try these grand jetés around the house, and. I, was the, I, I became a very deeply shy person as a result of all the abuse I got for <laughs> attempting to <laughs> model myself and Marco uh. Fonte. But I could imagine you doing that. And, um, and w- w- was it possible to make a living out of it? I mean, did you make a good living out of ballet then? I did, yes. I made a
2: good living working in Europe. The difference being, of course, that the arts are um, highly respected in Germany and very, very well funded. So, yes, I made a good living. Um, you know, I had a father who, of course, like lots of Irish Irish fathers, when you know I was trying to save up a few quid, said buy a house. Yes.
0: <laughs> and did you buy a house? And I bought a house. Did you? Yes, I did. Yeah. In Ireland. In Ireland. That was very obedient of you,
2: wasn't it? Just. It was. Yes. Um, and I did. Um, so subsequently, when I returned to Ireland, I had a home to come to before. Property prices in Ireland went, yeah, yes. yeah, totally bonkers.
0: Yes, I bought my yes, house. And in the meantime, Anne, you are meeting all these ballet greats. I mean, mm. you ballet great were meeting other ballet greats. And they all, I mean, you know, what we, What we know of, of of some of them, eccentric, you know, all these stereotypes we know about, you know, the stab on the back, the very effeminate men who turn out to not have been so effeminate after all if the latest um, accusations are true mm. um, all of that All of are they true and were you half starved all the time and did your toes bleed and all that stuff
2: <laughs> my toes definitely bled mm. in fact sometimes your toes and your feet might be so bruised and painful and everything else that I would stand on my feet in the wings I would you know stand on my foot in order to try and make it numb for two minutes at least so that when I went out instead you wouldn't feel it at all
0: you had to Hopefully. numb your toes. Yeah,
2: yeah. If I could have,
0: yeah. There's a great quote from a New York Times piece, Anne, which I'm going to read out to you because I am fascinated by dancers on point, and I don't still the don't. Ultimate know how high do it. heels. <laughs> well, that actually certainly gives me something to relate to because I can't wear high heels. This woman says standing still on point is not a static act, but a flurry of micro muscles working in tandem to make a body float. Days and years disappear as dancers train to hide the effort behind their superhuman strength. That, you know, it looks so delicate and yet all mm. of that is going on, all of that weight on your foot. Is that what you're training for all these years? Of course. I mean, the thing is that, you know,
2: ballet, I suppose, is the the most refined discipline of dance it is the most refined of the actual genres and it is kind of the pinnacle and you know it's a bit like classical music it was only by being able to do the most extraordinary things that then people uh, could take it apart uh, if you like Um, but dancing on point is was the ultimate expression of the female form and its femininity, etc., etc. So it began that, you know, when ballet was in its infancy, I suppose, and ladies wore long dresses and then they hitched them up bit by bit as the technique increased and improved. And then bit by bit, they also got up higher on what we call demi-point, which little people might refer to as their tiptoes these yes. days. And then eventually onto point and that was the the pinnacle then they had arrived you could go no higher you know it um, looks so unnatural Anne. it's totally unnatural Kathy. completely and utterly unnatural but um it becomes so, so ordinary and comfortable you know i mean really? well wouldn't you have to six hours that about high heels a and they're day. never comfortable no but but point shoes are more comfortable. You're actually on your toes. So you're not trying to stand on your metatarsals. You get off those onto your toes. And and don't forget, we are training day in and day out to build the muscles in your ankles to support your weight like that. I mean, ballet dancers are athletes. Yes. And the worst thing about ballet is the fact that we make it look so easy. Yes. It, that's the the. Catastrophe of it all, I think. You know, we're trained to make it look effortless. If we could huff and puff and grunt and groan and sweat and, and make it
0: look as hard as it actually is, uh, people would appreciate it more. I think you should try and rebrand it as that because <laughs> there is a view of ballet as being kind of a bit of elitist and a bit snobby. Yeah. Um, and is it, what is the why, why is that, Anne? Is it because, is, opera has the same problem. It does, yes, I suppose,
2: because, you know, they are art forms that um, that required a lot of money and therefore were only practiced within, you know, court originally uh, surroundings. You know, if you think, for instance, uh, for a writer, a writer just needs a pencil and paper to practice their art form. They also huff
0: and puff a lot, but everybody knows about that. <laughs>
2: drink a lot of coffee yes Yes. but but you need you know ballet and opera um you know playing in an orchestra these kinds of of art forms cannot be practiced or a sculpture you know if you take someone who produces extraordinary bronze pieces it's very expensive um so and we in Ireland you know we're a very young country um we're only around as we know, you know, less than 100 years, uh, 100 years as a proclaimed republic, but, you know, as an entity, really far less than that. So we we haven't had money to invest in our, in culture. I won't say our culture, but I I now embrace ballet as being our culture. You know, of course it is. We're wonderful
0: dancers and we're wonderful storytellers. And all of that... And I suppose, you know, what, as you say, this, this, part of its magic is this, this portrayal of fragility and lightness and all mm. of that while performing this superhuman athleticism. Um, but it's had its me too moment. And in many ways, when I was reading about it in the last few days, I wasn't all that surprised when I read something that you, uh, said, I don't know how long ago, a couple of years ago, maybe, where you said that it is, it is, it is one of those, those, um, Areas where people are almost kept young, where they're treated as boys and girls mm-hmm. for far too long, um, and I don't know if you actually—you didn't say it was misogynistic, but you said you don't do shouting. But now you are suggesting—I I think that it might there might be a touch of misogyny.
2: Oh, absolutely, there definitely is, and
0: well i hope there
2: still isn't too much of it about but there definitely was um you know we we see it emerging now and people are talking about it and and people are admitting to to incidences that they perhaps were actually personally affected by um but if if you just looked across you know in my lifetime across companies and with people that i worked with um Definitely. We were infantilized. Uh, You know, it keeps you obedient. And of all things, obediency in the dance world was a requirement. Well, not a requirement, but it was very useful because it meant that they kept people, you know, in line, on time with the music, simple, basic things like that. Um, And it was perfectly normal to hurl abuse at people and call them names and Various things because they weren't doing what was required uh, at the time, um, or they weren't thin enough, or they weren't beautiful enough. Uh, all of those things, and that would be
0: would be shouted at you from time to time. Oh, totally, yeah. Would. See, in, in that respect, Anne, it's it is such. You know, Women in particular are so vulnerable, I feel, because you do all your work facing a mirror. Yeah. Which to most women is their idea of an absolute ongoing Fair. nightmare. Um, you are dealing with male dancers at your most vulnerable, mm. you know, in a tiny little, 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 your workout gear, I suppose, to start with. But you're also yeah. performing very intimate acts with them. Mm. Um, so are, are ballet dancers unusually vulnerable to abuse? and to that sort of kind of fraternity atmosphere that has been described in in New York?
2: Um, I think sometimes they are, but I also think that um, they're extraordinarily strong and tough too, because um, the training and what you put yourself through physically every day um, in your practice uh, gives you, extraordinary depth and strength, mental strength to be able to do what you do, um and the desire, the burning desire to do it. So yes, you know, there is there is a trade off of vulnerability, but but there is there is a deep strength within dancers too and a discipline and an ability to just keep going and ignore and, you know, get where you're going, I suppose. But
0: you're having to ignore. A lot of sometimes things.
2: and sometimes I know there are dancers who have probably succumbed
0: well, that happens everywhere it does indeed, and many romances start in the workplace, and that after all is the <laughs> is your workplace. but one of the things that did strike me about the 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 the, 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 the me too wars in New York in particular in various yeah. ballet companies yeah. was they've had their own um text exchanges which featured in a lawsuit. Which spoke really very very badly about about the male dancers' attitude toward the females, yeah. and at one point there was a debate as to whether the men the men should be sacked. The company decided there were, there were many people rushing in to defend them, saying they should be given a second chance. But this particular writer said, "Your body is your work in ballet; yeah. that mm. it's quite different to say if you're a writer or a, you know working in." tech or something, that your body is actually what, what defines you in ballet. Yes, And is. therefore if a man, if a male dancer is making these lewd suggestions about dancers' bodies and how young they are, that really there can be no excuses.
2: Yes. I mean, I would agree and I thought what, um, what came out in those articles about those dancers from New York and New York City Ballet I think in particular, was absolutely disgusting Um, and shocking because I have never heard uh, male dancers speak in Europe in such terms. But then I wonder sometimes, is it just my age or uh, my position that I don't hear it so much? After all, I'm not a young woman anymore. Uh, Because equally, I was as the nation was, utterly shocked by the kind of uh, text messages that we heard about in a recent um, case revolving sports stars. So uh, we were all horrified and utterly taken aback Mm. by what was said in those. And I don't think anybody for a moment would have expected to hear such...
0: Degrading yes. language being used about young women from apparently brought, well brought up young men. Correct, but we have the same thing in ballet now. Yeah, have you encountered this yourself at all, Anne, in 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 your work as a director and and I
2: I have on occasion had uh, felt it necessary to speak to one or two dancers whom I felt were not respectful enough in the workplace, and I won't tolerate that. Um, And in particular, I think back to a situation of uh, two dancers who were rehearsing a pas de deux and they happened in real life to be a couple. But the gentleman uh, was not very gentlemanly toward his partner and not professional uh, within the workplace. And so, yeah, I mean, I spoke with him and took him outside and said, you know, that either has to stop now or You'll have to take your professional derrière somewhere else. That is just excellent. Anne. Thank you. This is
0: why we need more women everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> and and how interesting is ballet? I mean, really, haven't we learned a lot in that conversation? Yeah. I think we really could start start rebranding it and sort of get to know a bit more about what goes on behind the scenes. And
2: yeah, you know that is the thing, Kathy. People actually have to get into the studio, yeah. and they hack ballet shouldn't be on a stage. They should be involved at much closer quarters to it because it is a very visceral um, experience and uh, it's, yeah, it's great.
0: Right. All of you going to Bold Moves in March, remember this. Listen back to this interview again and remember what lies behind this extraordinary art. Anne Mara, thank you so much for coming in. I'll always think of you as Dame Anne (laughs) Mara. That was Anne Mara of Ballet Ireland speaking to me there, or what I prefer to say, Dame Anne Marr. Now, Hedy Fry has been an MP in Canada since 1994, making her the longest serving woman in the country's parliament. Born in Trinidad and Tobago, Hedy was in Dublin recently to visit her old stomping ground at the Royal College of Surgeons where she studied in the 1960s. Our co-producer Jennifer Ryan went along to the RCSI to meet her.
3: I want to start off first asking you about uh, growing up in Trinidad and Tobago what was it like in the 1960s socially and politically? What kind of place was it?
4: It was quite a progressive place, actually. Um, women were, there were lots of great role models who were women in those days. I mean, we had ministers who were women, we had judges who were women. It was so, it wasn't new for me to come to a place like Ireland, but I did because I was comfortable in, in, in Trinidad and Tobago, good role models, they were sort of very strong women, outspoken women. So coming here, the only difference was the climate, really. And, but when I came here, I felt very much at home because, as you know, CSI was probably one of the first medical schools to bring in foreign students. And so I saw a whole lot of people who were different in, in, in our class and in, in the college, wandering around, who were, you know, different colored skins, different languages, different attitudes, things. So I felt completely at home.
3: And that's unusual because that wouldn't have been reflective of Irish society as a whole. No, it was like a small it little bubble almost. This was a bubble. And yeah. what, what was Dublin like then in the nineteen in nineteen sixties?
4: Well, was it the, very conservative? Did you find it, it conservative it was, outside of the Orcsi? It was very conservative. But not only that, there was like one Chinese restaurant and there was one Indian restaurant. And, I mean, that didn't matter too much to us because we didn't have money to go eat in restaurants anyway as students. But it was very, you know, very insular, very sort of, not been, hadn't been opened up to the world in the same way that it is now. Except for this bubble called RCSI.
3: And what was your life like in in uh, Trinidad and Tobago growing up? Did you come from a well-off background or were you, all, were you always very studious at school? Do you come from a long line of doctors?
4: No, my parents were... Um, my father was a tailor and my mum did this shorthand Pittman's course where she was a receptionist when she first started. So, and they, they were not educated, they did not finish high school. So I came from that kind of background and... Um, but my parents had one thing that they wanted, that their only child was going to be educated, reach whatever her potential was in education, so they started to save money from the day I was born. One, to give me a university education if I turned out to be somebody who could merit a university education. And secondly, if, if they needed to, and they, had, and they didn't have to pay for me and I got a scholarship, they were going to use the money to build a house because... They didn't own a home, so that was sort of we grew up. And I happened to be win to win scholarships, etc. And then I won a scholarship to Oxford, which you didn't take. End, which Can you, I, you tell me about well, that decision? It's kind of interesting. I um, I was going to take it because my dream was to be a writer. You know, I was going to be the sort of Christian Amapur In those days, television was not a big deal, but you know, it was. I was going to be writing for Time Magazine because Time Magazine was it in the fifties. Uh, and then I was going to be an author, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. and then so when I got the scholarship, I was going to come here, and then I was going to jo- join RADA, the Royal Academy of Dramatic Arts, and because that was the way I was sort of seeing my future unfold. But in order to do the scholarship exam, uh, when I was doing the exam, took, I read this Oxford professor who wrote a book saying Hamlet was manic-depressive and Lady Macbeth was obsessive-compulsive, and, and Macbeth was... Um, passive-aggressive, and Lear had senile dementia. And I thought that was intriguing. So I ran off to the library and got young and Freud, and started reading, and I found that even more intriguing. And my dad and I were very close, and I said to him, you know what, I would love to be a psychiatrist. And he said, really? Then he quietly went and talked to my family doc, who said, she has to be a doctor to be a psychiatrist. And what I did uh, at high school and, and was languages. I did French literature, Spanish literature, English literature. I did geography and math were well, my two, like, non, um, non-art non subjects. And so he said, she can't be a doctor, she doesn't have any science. And so I went, like, ah. Anyway, um, my father said, well, I want you to help me to find a place for whom I take her without science. So he began, you know, to look, at, to look and he found that at the time, the Royal College of Surgeons was doing a pilot project, They were bringing in 10 people in their pre-med class who had the top of the bell curve in arts, uh, literature, um, the humanities, etc. And they wanted to prove that medicine was an art informed by science and not a pure science. He sent my marks, I got in. And so I came in here, my father said, I have money saved, I'm sending you. And so I gave up the scholarship, and I don't remember who took it or or, or whatever. The person second in marks got it. Um, And I came here, and I had that one year pre-med in which to be able to qualify to get into medical school. So I had to do physics, chemistry, and biology and, you know, do it in a year because my dad gave me his life savings. And so that was my incentive to do no it. No pressure. Uh, it was no pressure. I knew H2O was water, so I was ahead <laughs> of the game. But um, but it was really a different time And but I was motivated by my father having given me his money. Um, and, and all his friends saying, you don't want to, t- you want to give a girl to go and do medicine and give all your savings to her. She's going to get married and have kids and whatever. And my father says, she's my daughter, and, and this is an opportunity, and she wants to have it, and she got in it. I'm going to make sure she gets her opportunity.
3: Incredibly encouraging parents.
4: Incredibly encouraging parents, especially
3: my dad. How many years did you spend in Ireland? Uh,
4: We did the one-year pre-med, and then we did a a seven-year that included an internship. So I was eight, and then I got married to an Englishman, and he wanted to do his fellowship. He wanted to be a surgeon, so he did a year's fellowship. So we stayed here, and we had had our first child here, who was born in Ireland, and... uh, and so we left in 1970 because the NHS was doing very badly across the water, and we, um, we also felt that the system here was different. The North America was just looking for physicians because they had a real shortage, and we got headhunted to go to the United States, offering us a ton of money that you would never make here in the, in the, in the system. So but I was reading about some guy named pierre Trudeau who had written a book about the Just Society, and he was Prime Minister of Canada, and I said to my husband, let's not go to the States. i nah, let's go to Canada. And because this Just Society, I felt, was something I could buy into because it meant you didn't have to choose between a home and giving your child an education, you know. Opportunity was the biggest thing to give individuals in Canada at that time. So we went to Canada. He went in and did a residency in, in surgery, went on to do vascular surgery. And, um, and we went to British Columbia to live immediately.
3: You're mentioning of the just society there. You're obviously interested
4: in politics even then. I was interested in, in changing things, you know. I always felt, my, my father used to always say to me, look, you, you know, you, everybody's born with a talent, Uh, the trick in life is to find out what that talent is and to take it and run with it. It'll be easy for you and you will be happy because you'll be doing what you love and you will also be doing what you're good at. But at the same time, don't use that talent just for you. You've got to use it to make the world a better place, make a difference, you know, leave a footprint uh, somewhere that would say, she was here and she she changed something. So it was always like that. And I was always a joiner and a changer and a doer, one of these People that always poked my nose into doors, opened it, walked into the room, looked at everybody and went, yo, I'm here. And that was the end of it. Right. So, so
3: tell me about, you worked for a few decades as a doctor in Canada, in Vancouver. You became more politicized, obviously, during that time. When, when was the moment, what was the thing that pushed you into the political realm completely and decided you'd run for office?
4: Well, I, I, I was politicized because we have, I don't know if you have it here, but we have provinces in Canada, because of universal health care, had like provincial medical associations where doctors came together because we had to negotiate with the province for fee payments. So, you know, doctors behaved in so many ways like a union. Um, and I got involved, and, and a lot of women couldn't get to do residencies and surgery, and I thought, oh, that's not fair, and I started opening my mouth about that. And So I joined, because I like to join, and then I joined the British Columbia Medical Association. And then I eventually got, because of my big mouth, I got moved forward by the Medical Association into other areas, chairing committees and doing that. And eventually I went on to the board of the British Columbia Medical Association, where I was the only woman with 33 men on the board. And that was kind of fun. But uh, then I got pushed into becoming eventually the president. And because of that, I was a spokesperson for the BC Medical Association. And because of that, I also went to the Canadian Medical Association, which is the national body. And so they also... I was always on CBC and on the national news commenting on something to do with medicine and healthcare. And so, and and we had general assemblies where you had to get up and fight for your resolutions. And of course, coming from British Columbia, everyone likes to say that British Columbia is a roots and berries province, you know, where tree harvest. So we were always going with something to change things. So I got very involved in that. And And that was why I was on television while talking about changes that we wanted to make in healthcare. But I went in because of Pierre Trudeau, who attracted me to Canada. I never did get involved in that kind of politics. And in medicine, politics was about, um, A, negotiating with the province, provincial government, but it was also about ability. People moved you forward. You didn't go and say, vote for me, look at me, get me, whatever. You never had to do that, so... I kind of slipped slipped into things. And eventually, um, I joined the Liberal Party when I first went there. I never got involved. As somebody in an election, I'd put a sign on my lawn, and I would donate to the candidate, and that was it. I never did anything else. But I did come to the attention of politicians. And one of the reasons I did, because I eventually was one of the people in a show on CBC nationally called Dr. Doctor, And it went on for six years, and it was just before Hockey Night in Canada. And you have to be a Canadian to know that Hockey Night in Canada is watched by practically the whole population. So I was, again, seen a lot on TV and known across the country for that. Uh, When the the man who became prime minister when I ran uh, was running for leadership, one of my patients said to me, she said, ''You know, I'm co-chairing his campaign here in the province.'' Would you like to join and help him? And I said, I can't do that. I, I don't know about politics. And I went to the board, and I said, they want me to do this. And they said, as long as you're not getting involved in provincial politics, we don't care. So I backed him for leadership, and then he became he won leadership. Uh, we was, they were still opposition. And then one day he said, uh, would you have breakfast with me? So I kind of went, and he asked me a whole bunch of questions. And he said, I want you to run for us. I went, you're joking politics i said that is and i it is my actual language i said what a scuzzy business and he laughed and he said no no it's public service you know it's a calling it's like medicine you know you're there to serve the people and so i went well i am doing medicine i'm always getting trying to get seatbelt legislation through the province and getting a bunch of things out. i said, I think i'm doing public service and he left me alone then he asked me for lunch and at lunch he asked me again and he said I really would like you to run for us federally and I said uh, no he said well you know you came to this country and it's been good to you are you going to put something back I said I put back half of my income and in income tax so I I think I've been putting back and he left me alone and about four months later he asked me for dinner and he brought his wife with him and uh, he said you know I've watched you and I've Been researching you, and he said, "You're an activist. You're always pushing for change, whether it's seatbelt legislation, whether it's infant mortality, whether it's ever something. You're always there, pushing for change." And he said, "So how would you like to become to come inside the tent and make the change happen rather than knocking on the door?" And I went, "I could do that." And he said, "Yes, you can." And he got me. He hooked me with that. And he, I said, "Well, I'll run on one condition: you amend the Canadian Human Rights Act." To make sexual orientation a prohibited ground for discrimination, because a lot of my patients are gay, or you know, and, and I said, and they're discriminated against under the law in this country with a Charter of Rights that says you cannot discriminate against minorities. And he said, you're right, because he had been the Justice Minister who brought in the Charter, and he said, you're absolutely right. We tried to get it in when we brought in the Charter, but the provinces didn't want it. But now is a good time. And I said, well, give it to me in writing. He did, and so I ran.
3: And you won. And, and you un- unseated the prime minister at the time, the sitting prime minister. Yeah. <laughs> That's quite well, a bold statement to make <laughs> as you enter into politics. I I'm di- here,
4: but I did not. I didn't. I didn't think I was going to win. I mean, she was the first female prime minister. She wasn't elected. She had been named leader of her party because the pri- then prime minister had walked away. They were in government. She won the leadership. She became the leader, um, and so she had to call an election in three months. So she was only a prime minister for three months. But I thought. A British Columbia woman, and I come from British Columbia, we never get to be anything nationally, so here it is, a British Columbian, a woman, being prime minister. That's something that most people would not be able to resist. If I ran against her, I'm sure to lose. Um, And so, but I thought I'm going to have fun and write about it later one day when I get back to being an author, quote-unquote, and I'd write about what it was like to run against a sitting prime minister, but and then I won and I was shocked
3: Canada does have this reputation as being a very uh, like a a beacon of liberalism in the world especially today when we've so much conservatism populism and politics is that that real that, that image that is portrayed internationally
4: very real um I, um I was able to accomplish what I wanted to do because I had a prime minister, a liberal prime minister, who, based on the Charter of Rights and Freedoms brought in by the father of our current prime minister, uh, that really was all about equality. And not just about equality in terms of creating quotas so you can have equal numbers of people doing equal areas, it was about giving people opportunity that they need and this good government gave people the skills and tools that they needed to overcome whatever barriers they were facing, whether those barriers were physical or psychological or, or racial or or yeah. geographical or whatever the barriers were the or, poverty, etc. Um, so that was a liberal mantra. It was true. And so we all worked on those things to try and make that happen. And But it, it, I must really honestly say that it wasn't just liberal governments that felt that way. Canada is a liberal nation. And it's a liberal nation in general, small l, because a lot of the people who came to Canada as immigrants started they came after World War I, after World War Two, They were fleeing persecution. They were fleeing um, whatever was going on in their countries. They wanted to come and have a start in life and have an opportunity to make a new life for themselves. So they all came with that determination. And so it was, it was, the people came with that sense of feeling. And they were new and they were given opportunity immediately because it was a vast land and all these people suddenly came. And, and they found the opportunity... And they understood that other people needed the opportunity. And I think that kind of grew, and the idea that that immigrants made the country a better place was actually really, really true, because the Ukrainians came and they farmed the prairies, Canada became the breadbasket of the world, growing wheat, etc., from Ukrainians. Russians came and farmed the land. Uh, Sikhs came and started in the forestry sector. Um, The Chinese came and built a railroad that linked this massive nation from the Atlantic to the Pacific. Uh, and helped it to grow into the nation it is today, so people knew that everybody else built for the nation, and there was a deep sense from everybody that, that was so, and then a lot of the people who came wanted a better life for their children. So they invested in Canada with their work, they didn't have money, but they invested their hard work and their dedication and their love and to build this nation. and so you know because when Canada thrived, they did. Mm-hmm and the, the, the realization of the dream that, they, that most people who came to Canada came with they, most of them came with nothing but they came with a dream and they realized their dream and they wanted other people to do so however it was still difficult because um, people all, all had to be speaking English and French bilingualism of course um, and people all kind of tried to become good Canadians whatever that was it wasn't as defined as it was in the United States but then Prime Minister Trudeau decided, when he was doing a referendum on bilingualism, Ukrainians and a lot of the Russians and, the, and Germans who had come in after the war said, hey, we're not chop liver, you know. This may be a bilingual country, but it's a multicultural nation with people coming from every corner of the world with their cultures. And that was when multiculturalism was born, which is said, if you come to the country, you, are, you bring with you your culture, your language, your beliefs, your religion, all those things, and you keep them.
3: Where we find ourselves at the moment with your neighbours to the south, uh, in the United States, multiculturalism is not respected. No. Uh, There's xenophobia. They want to batten down the borders. Mm -hmm. There's uh, fear-mongering over immigration. And I know there's federal elections coming up in Canada, am I right? In October, yeah. In October. So uh, I wonder... Is there any fear of a sort of a bleed over uh, of that mentality into Canadian politics and uh, that things like we saw in the Trump election in 2016 might um, rear their heads when it comes to people going to the polls in October?
4: Well, it's very interesting because nobody ever believed that the Progressive Conservative Party would die, and it did, because there were 180 seats when the Progressive Conservatives were government when I ran against... Kim Campbell, the prime minister, um, and people were angry at the government because uh, because of unemployment was high, mortgages were like eighteen percent. People were worried; they were losing their homes out loud, and, and they blamed it on the government, of course. And um, and they decided to, to get rid of the government. So they were angry at the government. But when Canadians get angry in in, in the polls, they get angry. They went from over one hundred and eighty seats to two too. Wow. And so that left the room open. Um, A part of it happened because um, this new conservative party, much more right of center, who was preying on the, on the unemployment and the recession and people losing their homes and stuff and saying, you know oh well, well that's happening we're going to make a difference you're paying too high taxes you doesn't and they, they, people ran to them because people were afraid when you get become afraid it's easy for that kind of populism and nationalism to take root so people voted for them and they remained therefore the official opposition and they won this election in uh, 2006. And nobody expected it. I think the country woke up like the United States did with Trump and went, OMG, what do we do here, you know? And yet they thought, well, they can't be bad. This is Canada, you know, whatever. And But, but the, the leader, a fellow named Stephen Harper, and they stayed for 10 years. They, they formed min- minority governments. They never got a majority government. And when they lost um, to, to Justin Trudeau, it was because they had begun to do some of the... The very right wing things. They started pitting Muslim women wearing the niqab. They didn't want them to wear the niqab or the hijab. They were, they were saying newcomers were creating some of the problems that we're having in this country. Uh, and the Prime Minister himself started talking about old stock Canadians, mm-hmm. which meant all these people who came at the beginning of time and came either from France or England, right? And mm-hmm. everybody else were. And, and, and Canadians began to feel uneasy about that language, you know. They began to feel, well, hello, uh, this is not what we want to hear our prime minister say. And then he began to sort of walk away, like Trump did, from participation on the global stage. It was like, Canada, we don't need the United Nations, we don't need all these people, you know, we can be this little castle and put a moat around us and, you know, just look after Canada and forget everything else. Canadians are a very international lot, um, and they are very proud that in, you could at one time in Canada, before these people, the, that government came, you people would buy, Americans would buy a Canadian flag to put on their backpack and pay 200 bucks for it when they were students traveling in Europe because they wanted people to think that Canadians are not Americans. And so Canadians were all very quietly, smug and proud of this little these people that we were and we did we, we punched above like Ireland is doing now we punched above our weight on the world stage people trusted canada people who hated each other's guts countries that were fighting each other trusted canada because we were like the boy scout we were, we we always fought for human rights and for the underdog and we were fair and we were, so we had a reputation came up that came about under different prime ministers different stripes liberal progressive conservative to create that sense of what canada was and then Canada started to change. And literally, I would go uh, internationally, people would say, what happened to Canada? I mean, seriously, we stopped fighting the fights that we fought out there on the world stage. And we just withdrew. And um, so that when he started to become very openly um, negative about immigrants and openly negative about um Muslims and openly negative in that way, um, Canadians kind of felt, began to feel uneasy. Mm-hmm. And so, and then of course, guess who started to run? The guy who brought in <laughs> the cherished Charter of rights and freedoms, the uber liberal himself, Trudeau, and, and, and he was born when his father was in office. Mm. So everybody knew this kid named Justin Trudeau who um, they watched grow up. And they watched him being a brat, and his father holding them under his arm and taking him, kicking and screaming out of the room. It was there was a sort of a like a vested sense that I thought it was like, say, like John John in, in the Kennedy era, there was a sense that people knew this kid. And then he had multiple problems to deal with. His mother became was diagnosed with um, bipolar disorder, um, and she was acting out in public, and he, they had to deal with that in school as kids. He had to deal with uh, the death of his middle brother there were three boys and he had to deal with the death of his brother in an avalanche and never found his body and he had to deal with his father's grief with that loss and his own grief with the loss and then his father died and that was a huge loss for the nation and for him as a boy he went through all these and he never acted out Behaved badly, became a brat, took drugs, did any of these things. So I think a lot of Canadians felt that they could trust this kid. Mm. People used to talk about him as a kid. He was a 45 year old man running to be prime minister and they would call him the kid. And they'd go, yeah, yeah. And so there was, because people were feeling uneasy with the government of the day, there was this sense that this is not Canada. And suddenly, you know. Captain Canada decides to run and people just felt that they could trust him and there was this we we had gone down to the third party status in the house we were 34 of us and this guy won across the country he swept the country a massive majority and it was again that hunger for something that was familiar we wanted to be Canadian we felt again Um, now you know, he—he's young and he's new, and of course now he—he he doesn't wear his father's name anymore, and he doesn't wear his. This is a kid. He's wearing this as a prime minister, and we don't like what he did, or we liked what he did. So he's now running on his on his own thing and so he's still still is popular but i mean the popularity isn't what it was when they first got him there but he's still popular because people still believe that they can trust him but he's got a he's got a record now that they can
3: judge him on his own as you say his own record. so they can poke holes in the economy they can can. of course
4: they can and the opposition is doing that um and he but i think you know he has gone out and done things internationally and globally that have made canadians proud again lgbtq rights human rights Minority rights, women's equality, um, you know, increasing the, the developmental aid to, to countries, uh, specifically saying I want to get women to be able to have a choice in contraception and abortion. And, and is, is, is
3: Canada a good place to be a woman under Trudeau? Is it better than it was?
4: I think it's a good place to be a woman under Trudeau, but it's, it's, it, it, Justin, Justin has vocalized it. But it began um, a while ago. It began under my old boss, Crutchen, when he decided that women, he wanted more women to run. And uh, he decided that the only way to do it was to appoint women, because we have nomination processes if you want to run for a particular thing.
3: What are the percentages in, in government at the moment?
4: At the time, it was 12% when he, we won in 1993. And he, the party, agreed on a policy that we were going to get... of women in the House. So he decided that for women to run in what we call winnable ridings, you know, if you wanted to run women and say, look at me, I'm running women, you could run them in ridings that liberals never won or conservatives never won and you can say, well... Sorry, they didn't win. But he decided to run them in Winnable Ridings because he had set up a group of of us as women to say, what kind of policies I need to do to get more women in? So he did that. And in fact, when he won in 1993, there was 25% of women in the House. And he said, and I'm going to put 25% of women into my cabinet. So he immediately started. And then, of course, the next time it was the 33% Goal, Because, you know, the old idea that 33 is a critical mass. Um, And then when Justin came, it it has been so long since 1993 that he sort of went like, well, geez, let's not do this. Let's go 33% and then go whatever. 50, let's go with 50. And I want 50% of women in my cabinet. And even though he didn't win 50% of women in the House of Commons, which are now 28% women, he put 50% of women in his cabinet. So he has been walking the walk from that perspective um, but it, whether or not it's still better to be a woman, it is because the Prime minister's is always talking about it, the Minister is always talking about it. It is a huge, cutting, cross-government policy in terms of legislation and and, po- and programs and policies. They're all, it's all this sort of gender lens that we're using on everything. But it's not just gender, I think, for, because we had begun to talk about intersectionality in my day, which is not just about being a woman. It is about being... Um, a woman of colour, being a woman who has a different race, being a woman who is disabled, being a woman who um, is an indigenous in Canada, that these, be, you know, being um, your, your LGBTQ status, they were other challenges that, that some women faced that just being a woman wasn't enough. So we started to cut through the, into the intersectionality. So now intersectionality is a big policy that he talks about globally and that we are having in Canada. So hopefully you may see a change. I mean, these things don't happen, they take a while to make the change.
3: Well, speaking of change, there's been some big change in Ireland in the last uh, couple of Absolutely. years, even. So uh, th- that would be one of the last questions I want to ask you is, this is your first trip
4: back, right, since you left? I know I came, in in this, I came up sometime in the 80s when okay. we bought my three kids and we spent about three days here and then we went off to Europe and rented a okay. van.
3: Well, even, even, so, even since then, I suppose, I'd like to know, what, uh, you know, we've had repeal last year, we had uh, gay marriage legalised
4: just a couple of years before that. You have a brown-skinned gay Prime Minister. We
3: absolutely do. So how different is Ireland since you were here in the class of 68? Oh, it's changed
4: enormously. Um, it, it, in, fa- in fact, it was like our CSI opened its doors and Ireland was filled with what we grew up in, our CSI, in this little public place. But I see it happening. I see that Ireland has changed when... A woman's right to choose that referendum won. Like, and when gay marriage won, I, I kept saying, this is not the order. I knew where women never got pregnant outside of wedlock when I was here. They didn't,
3: you know. Well, you didn't see them. They did. Well, but well, you of didn't course you did. Because but, we but locked the, them away.
4: But it was like statistically zero, oh. right? And they got on the train. They went off to, to, to Britain and they got their abortions there. But we all knew that. And, um, and you know, the church would excommunicate people. I mean, our prime minister, Jean Chrétien, was excommunicated when he brought in um, all of the changes to, to the LGBTQ legislation and stuff. And especially when he passed gay marriage. He was, he was, he's Catholic, and he the archbishop excommunicated him. And he went like, meh. he still went to church, didn't care, you know. But I think um, it's that change, and I think maybe... The people are seeing the world differently. Uh, a lot of Irish uh, youth and, 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 and uh, middle class people are traveling a lot now. Um, they, they're seeing the different world. They're seeing that you know, the world is not necessarily going to hell on a handbasket uh, because of some of the changes that are made in some parts of the world. They're also becoming uh, to understand people differently and not... Be so afraid of them, and and you know, our, and education. I think our education has a huge role to play in it. And and Ireland has a very educated population now, and they they understand the world differently.
3: What is your advice for people
4: coming up behind you? My advice is what my father taught me, and I passed on to my sons, and it is back to suggesting that you are not alone, that we live in a society. And we need to look after each other and take care of each other because that way we will have peace. I, I mean, for me, this is what drives me still. There's so much to do. There is so much to change. And there are so many people to tell that to. And I and I really think this, my father always said, everyone has a talent. Everyone is a human being that's not born without some kind of thing that that they do well. And... And they've got to take that talent and use it because it's not theirs to, for themselves alone. It, it, they have to use it to make, make the world a better place, to leave, to leave a, a toe print, to leave a mark behind and say, because I passed through this place, the world is just just one milli, milli, millimeter better because I did something to change it for the better. I think that gives us purpose.
3: Well, that's a beautiful point to leave it on. Thank you very much. Not at all.
4: And
0: that's all we have time for today. Thanks to our guests today, Anne Marr and Hetty Fry. Remember, you can subscribe to the Women's Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We are on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and all good podcast apps. And you can always find us on irishtimes.com. Today's podcast was produced by Rosie Engel and by Jennifer Ryan with JJ Vernon on sound. I'm Cathy Sheridan. And until next time, thanks for listening.